science. Welcome to everybody who's listening to us, uh, whether it's uh, you're listening uh, off air uh, or uh, whether you are listen- well, listening to us on the internet, the worldwide interweb. Uh, it's very good to have your company. If you're listening uh, on a download, you don't need, or rather a stream uh, repeat, you don't need me to tell you how to do it. But those of you who want to do it, if you go to bcfmradio.com uh, and you uh, look at the uh, schedule, the list of programs, uh, you can see Love and Science, and also lots of other uh, excellent uh, BCFM programs. Uh, you can uh, download them and listen to them later. Uh, big thanks to Celia from uh, Up Our Street. Our remit is to look at science in the news and behind the news. Uh, Andrew Glester, my normal uh, co-presenter, is not with me today, but I am uh, delighted uh, to have Hannah Bestwick with me again. Hi, Hannah. Hey, it's really good to be here. Uh, we, in fact, you were with us not last week but the week before i was yeah i hope i'm going to be a suitable stand-in for andrew <laughs> no well i have to say no one can fill andrew's just, shoes but that's probably a cannot. good thing just be glad that you know you, you your feet <laughs> don't be glad fit that i shoes. know him uh, yes just be glad that <laughs> glad that you know him it's uh really good to have you on the show Thank and you. have you had uh much of a uh, i think in the last two weeks uh, since i've seen you much happened Has it been um a, i mean the only thing i can really mention at the moment is, is i've been to porter's head to see the soapbox derby yesterday oh very oh, good really exciting i had a really great time um so is this a, is this a kind of um i always imagine it for some reason as a sort of a, a downhill event yeah it, it is. is they're not they're not powered at all right you've essentially okay. made a homemade go-kart there's quite a lot of regulations about what you have to do uh one thing i did find out is you have to have brakes you have to uh, and it's a 400 meter downhill slope with uh, some uh obstacles to slow you down because you can get up to about 40 uh, miles an hour i think they said coming oh. down the hill and the ramp is what gets most people and that just falls apart when they try to <laughs> try to stick the landing so um, i mean do most people i'm, I'm sure everybody survives one way or another but yeah. presumably it's the it's the stopping that's the big problem at the end um, well, at the end, they've got a, they've got a, a very, very large pile of uh, hay bales to stop you if you have any trouble. Uh, right. It's quite a short stop you've got, but like I said, everyone has to have brakes, so you can at least brake at the end. Is this the kind of thing you fancy entering yourself? I really would quite like to, but I think that um, maybe my driving skills aren't quite what I need them to be. It looked, it looked extremely difficult. I just, you know, I take my hat off to those guys that hurtled themselves down that hill. <laughs> Well, look, this week in the programme, back to science news there for a second, uh, we, we're gonna, we are actually going to hear from Andrew oh, good. Uh, talking on his favourite subject, which is science fiction. He's, he's found a physicist uh, and persuaded them to talk about science fiction. That's coming up. We'll see that in a moment. Nice. Uh, that's to do with Doctor Who. Oh, actually. excellent. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Doctor Who has a nice big new announcement is that they have a woman for the first time yeah. in all those years to play, uh, play in 50 years or something like that to play Doctor something Who. Something very long. So, it's yeah. Jodie, right? Yeah. yeah. Her name is Jodie. We'll hear all about her in just a minute. Uh, we're going to have a look at um, Jupiter's Great Spot uh, uh, because uh, we know a lot more about that. Uh, we're going to have an interview um, uh, all about uh, the fact that butterflies are facing a vital period, according to uh, David Attenborough, and it's important that uh, we survey them and know how many there are and what kinds there are, and we're going to hear all about that and how uh, we can all take part in that if we want to. Um, 
There's a new feature in the Natural History Museum as you walk straight in. I'm sure you've been across this story, Hannah. Yeah, I'm uh, just quite excited about it. I really like yeah. the idea that they've replaced it with something so so yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I hadn't realised that uh, the whale, Dippy the Whale... Sorry, not Dippy the Whale. Uh, the, um, called, the whale Dippy, called Hope, I Dippy think. Dippy the Diplo... Diplodocus? Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. The Diplodocus uh, had been there for a long time. But he's a facsimile. Um, he's not actually real. He's, oh, he's a yeah, he's a plasticast. He's plasticast. Modeled, yeah. Yeah. Whereas the blue whale, uh, the skeleton of the blue whale, that is the real deal. Yeah, it's a genuine skeleton yeah. bought in, uh, I think, 1981, I think they said, for about £250. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have a look at all, all of those stories. Uh, but first, we're going to go uh, back to Andrew, who's not physically present, but uh, he's uh, managed to uh, send us a report. Uh, and uh, uh, it should speak for itself. Uh, we'll see. But they're talking about Dr. Who. Hi, Malcolm. Hi, everyone. Uh, sorry I'm not in the studio today. I'm at the Institute of Physics... International Conference on Women in Physics at the University of Birmingham. And I am with Sarah Tesh. Hello, Sarah. Hi. Um, we were just talking about Doctor Who because a new one's been announced. It's Jodie Whittaker. Yeah, Jodie Whittaker. She's in Broadchurch. Although I mainly know her for being in St. Trinian's as the, as the secretary. Oh, OK. That's a film, is it? <laughs> yeah, the, oh. the modern St. Trinian's film. Oh, OK, cool. Mm. Yeah, and I've not seen... I've not knowingly seen Jodie Whittaker in anything. No, other than that... I I didn't realise that she was the secretary, I only realised last night in all of the news articles on it. I mean, obviously there's been some... some Ooh, so much, so much controversy over it. Yeah. yeah. Why, why is that? I think people view it as it's a character who was originally written as a man, and they're a bit like, how can you change a literary, literacy character, a fictional character? But then at the same time, it's about a guy who travels through space and time and there's a lot of stuff in there which physics possibly doesn't cover so I'm pretty sure he can change gender if he wants to, like, if it happens. Yeah. It's, it's, um, like, I, it's an odd one, isn't it? I mean, I, I always knew that it had two hearts, but there were, the other bits of his body sure, were kind of Yeah, and like, because he's always been a bit kind of, except for maybe David Tennant's one, a bit, what is the word, androgynous? Mm. Um, so I never really kind of thought about it from the point of view of he's a man kind of thing, except for David Tennant's character because he tended to fall in love. We're at the International Conference on Women in Physics. Um, yes, we are. So I, I suspect there's an uproar about um, Doctor Who being a woman. Mm. We're at a conference about women in mm. physics. Uh, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed that it's 2017 and that sort of thing is still happening. Um, I've just arrived at the conference. You've been here an, an evening and a, a little bit this morning. But what, what, what's the kind of feeling, your themes of the conference, what's going on? The main feeling is the fact that women are completely underrepresented in physics. So this morning we had, like, in the introductory talk, um, a lady who is, is specialises in astronomy, and she was saying some, like, really kind of awful statistics about the number of women in physics. So um, I think it was a case of the... Uh, there was an astronomy um, society and only 17% are women and the European Space Observatory it was like 22% of the scientists are women and stuff like that so it's about 
conference is going to be mainly focusing on the fact that we're underrepresented and we need to combat that somehow. But it's, I think it's also going to cover some bias because it's like, it's like there's some unconscious bias when people look at papers and everything like that. And so when it comes to like peer review or something like that, people tend to not accept papers with women first authors as readily as they do with men. Then there's things like funding. Women are less likely to receive funding. And it's just kind of a case of getting the awareness about, I think, mm. that kind of thing and trying to combat that bias. But at the same time, it's not a case of being like one gender is better than the other. It's just a case of making it so it's a fair competition between the two. Yeah. Okay. And you're Dr. Sarah Tesh. Yeah. <laughs> what did you get that PhD in? Oh, I got it in material science. So uh, I was creating a new type of water filter using uh, very small iron nanoparticles stuck onto carbon. Okay, how did it go? It was an interesting experience. No, it was good. I'm really glad I did it. Um, It was very challenging. And they don't warn you beforehand about how much equipment breaks. But, yeah, I'm glad I've done it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But you're now at uh, Physics World. I'm now at Physics World, yes. Which which is? uh, The Institute of Physics magazine essentially so it's the website and the magazine they send out to their members and uh, I'm a reporter so I get to write the news pick out what's really interesting science that's happening and stuff and then do you report on Doctor Who normally? no but I do try and get as many references in as possible especially into the blogs the blogs are the time where I can get (laughs) have a slight freedom with the amount of references I can put in Same with the captions on the pictures. We have a bit of a challenge that we try and yeah. make some of the captions. Oh, dear. Yeah, oh, yes. Lyrics or oh, really? references to things. I'll have to have a flick through and yeah. have a look on the website and see if I can capture it. This last season of Doctor Who, I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful season. I think it kind of... It, nine was a bit tricky and ten has been amazing. Yes. And um, Bill, as a companion, was... So good. Mm. I was yes. kind of hoping that Bill was going to... Stick the, around? Yeah, or that yeah. the Doctor was going to borrow her face. But then I realised that we'd lose that character. Mm. She might come back. She might come back. But I completely agree. I wasn't completely sure about the um, Clara Capaldi partnership. Um, but I really loved the Bill Capaldi. So good. Mm. Especially uh, with um, Nardal as well. Mm. Loved it. And it was just, it's just much more believable and much more kind of banter between it. Whilst before it seemed a bit forced. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you, um, Jodie Whittaker is coming at Christmas? Or should we yeah. reveal the Christmas? Do you have a favourite doctor? Matt I'm, Smith. Matt Smith? Yeah. Oh. I love Matt Smith with Amy Pond and Rory. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm not. Of, this is going to be controversial. I wasn't. A, I wasn't a massive Clara fan, but I think that because that was because she came after Amy Pond and Rory, who were my absolute favourites. Okay. So I liked the little like the partnership between them, yeah. and the fact that it made Matt Smith's Doctor and Amy like the best friends rather than anything else. Okay, but Clara had that whole um, Dalek thing. That was pretty amazing. Oh yeah, that episode was brilliant. And we just have to let them carry on (laughs) with that conversation. It probably would go on all day. Oh, absolutely. I know, just complete committed Doctor Who fans. But uh, uh, that that was uh, Andrew uh, talking with uh, Dr. Sarah Tesh. And uh, he's currently up at the International Conference uh, for Women in Physics uh, up in 
in uh, Birmingham. A big thanks to Andrew uh, for that. I hope he's enjoying uh, the continued conversation. Thank you for sending us that. And uh, we think we are love and science on BCFM. We are 93.2 FM. And uh, it is, as always, great to have uh, your company this afternoon i'm joined by hannah bestwick uh, you heard if you were listening earlier before we played the music you heard uh, andrew uh, in uh, conversation uh, with uh, dr sarah tesh uh, he's at the international conference uh, for women in uh, physics uh, and uh, so uh, yes that's what was going on just excuse me a moment everybody in the studio I have to press a button, and the button involves letting people in, and because (laughs) we're on a slight skeleton staff here, uh, then uh, that's necessary, and you you might be interested to know that if I hadn't pressed that button, John Ford would not have got in, and he would not have been able to uh, uh, do the show Getting Bristol Home uh, in about 45, 40 minutes' time. So there we are. Uh, Anyway, let's go back to uh, the subject in hand, which was Andrew was uh, uh, indulging his uh, passion, which is science fiction. He was talking about Doctor Who. I don't know how... Are you a Doctor Who fan? I used to be. I used to really intensely watch the... uh, Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant are sort of lost interest after that but i actually think i'll start taking it up again now that we've got a female doctor yeah well i think it's going to do wonders for yeah. your, uh, interest and unfortunately it's also going to make some people cross who think that the doctor should be yeah it will but i think actually the people who are getting the most cross are probably not fans yes, and so i think people who are right. who are into doctor who will most likely be okay yes, with it yes that's right because you have this fantastic fictional being who can change form you know why yeah. and so the the question would inevitably be well why not yeah, uh, why not? Why not? This is in, in, entirely reasonable. Uh, so we're looking forward to that. Um, uh, this will be the 13th uh, uh, Doctor Who. Um, so uh, uh, let's uh, look at some uh, science news. And we have uh, just mentioned earlier that the Lo- London's Natural History Museum has changed its major exhibit. I remember uh, years ago walking in through the entrance of uh, the Science Museum in London and being amazed to see this huge skeleton, uh, which is the Diplodocus, known as Dippy. And uh, uh, Dippy, as uh, Hannah told us earlier, is was a facsimile she was she's made it was a cast yeah of, a plaster of, cast a plaster cast yeah. of, her, of her bones um but nevertheless a, a, an awe-inspiring sight and you told me something interesting while we were playing the music that uh, she's going to be turned into yeah they're going to bronze. recast her in bronze and uh, put her out front in i think the east garden uh so you'll still be able to see her she's going to be there and uh in a more sturdy form so i assume that means out of bronze you can probably actually touch her now Ah, yes, of course. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, apparently, th- so the story is London's Natural History Museum has undergone a major revamp with a blue whale skeleton now forming the main exhibit as visitors come through the front door. Uh, the museum wants to change and refresh its image. Must be always a challenge just to keep museums uh, fresh. And um, it wants to be known for its living science 
rather than its old fossils. So. Yeah, that seems like it's been really, uh, a really long decision, really hard decision to make as well, yeah. um, to put something completely different because so many people have such strong affection towards Dippy that changing it at all has been a long, long time coming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they use an 80 million odd, they, they have 80 million odd specimens kept at the South Kensington Institution, uh, but their focus is on learning new things that bear down on the modern world. And in that sense, the blue whale is regarded as the perfect emblem. And it's been given, do you know what name it's been given? Uh, hope, I think. Yes. Yes. Hope <laughs> as a symbol of humanity's power to shape a sustainable future they say so there so there we go i do uh, have to hold up my hands and say that i got the date wrong it was bought in 1891 not 1981 wow. that's my mistake there well, so it is actually about 126 years old <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you can watch films of this but apparently it was a nightmare hanging it because it was a major engineering job yeah, uh, and they that you if you lift one part of it, you have to lift the other part exactly at the same speed in the same way. There's some really good time lapses yeah. of them putting it all together and slowly hoisting it into the air. I really recommend them. I think the BBC had uh, exclusive rights to film that, so we'll get a, get a yes. look online there. And uh, yes, it's a BBC uh, Horizon. And uh, it'll go out on Thursday, apparently at nine o'clock, if you mm. wanted to, to watch that. If, of course, you're not listening uh, to BCFM. Uh, and uh, I am delighted to uh, welcome uh, Richard Fox onto uh, Love and Science. Uh, are you there, Richard? Yes, I'm here. Uh, that's good. I do have to turn your level up a little bit. So there we go. Uh, hopefully uh, everybody can hear you now. Um, so Richard, just, just to uh, point out, you're from Butterfly Convers Conservation. You're the head of recording at Butterfly Conservation. What does that mean? Uh, well, Butterfly Conservation is a UK charity. Uh, we're a nature conservation organisation and um, we gather information on uh, the butterflies and moths that are native to the UK. And we then use that information to try and uh, improve their fortunes, basically. Many species are in decline, um, and so we're involved in lots of conservation work on sites and in landscapes across the whole of the UK, often working in collaboration with other much bigger organisations like the RSPB and the National Trust, um, and also providing advice to government and local government and landowners, um, how they can improve their, uh, their land and their um, land management for butterflies and moths and other wildlife. Uh, we, um, our, our programme, uh, as, as you probably know, comes out of uh, Bristol, although, of course, we're heard on the uh, internet as well. So we've got a, we, uh, our audience stretches far and wide. But is there a, a branch of your organisation that covers the Bristol area? Yeah, so we, uh, we kind of have a sort of federated sort of structure. So we have obviously have, exists as a UK, UK charity, uh, but we're also broken down into local branches. So there's a Somerset and Bristol branch that would directly cover the Bristol area. So anyone who joins Butterfly Conservation, because we're, we're a membership organisation, would automatically become a, also become a member of their local branch. And it's the local branches that do a lot of the hard work on the ground. They're all volunteers, but they're the ones who are actually doing the, the recording. And, and you asked about recording. So recording is simply making a note of the butterflies and moths that you see and passing that information on so that it can uh, then ultimately be, be used for conservation or scientific research. 
Um, so uh, the local branches sort of spearhead that recording work, so um, finding out what butterflies occur across the whole of the Bristol area and, and beyond, which moths as well, where the colonies are, how those colonies are doing, but also the local branch volunteers in, in carrying out um, practical habitat management on important sites for butterflies and moths as well. Now, um, one of the reasons we're highlighting this, and we're going to, we're going to uh, talk about a survey in, in, in just a moment, uh, one of the reasons we're highlighting it is because we recognise that um, butterflies, butterfly populations are coming under quite a lot of uh, stress. Why, why is that? Well, there are a lot of different reasons, a lot of different contributory factors, and uh, to be honest, we don't fully understand the situation in all cases. Uh, we know that uh, we've got a lot of good data, thanks to things like the big butterfly count that we'll, we'll come, and come on to talk about. Um, we've got a lot of good data. It's very clear that the numbers of butterflies and the distributions of many of our butterflies have declined drastically going back decades. So if you go back to the sort of 1970s, we find that three-quarters of our butterfly species in the UK have declined since the 1970s. And many of them are now quite scarce, threatened species that are restricted to nature reserves and other sort of special areas of habitat. But we also find now that, that many of our common species are struggling as well, and some of those are declining quite rapidly. The factors uh, include things like the intensification of agriculture, um, managing our farm fields ever more efficiently to produce uh, food crops and, and other crops. Um, and that has tended to push wildlife, including butterflies, sort of right to the edges and, and sometimes out of the farmed landscape so that there simply aren't the sort of wild edges, the uh, farm field margins and hedgerows where wildlife, you know, once used to thrive. Uh, but there are other factors as well. Uh, the way that we manage our woodlands and forests has changed dramatically in the last sort of 50 years or so. So our woodlands are much darker, shadier places nowadays than they used to be. And those open, sunny clearings, which were created by humans, by, by people managing the woods to take timber out, those have, uh, have largely disappeared now, those open, sunny clearings where, of course, the butterflies used to thrive. So there's a whole range of different factors. Um, climate change is having an impact as well, some positive impacts, but possibly some negative impacts too. So there's, there's quite a wide range of things. And then there are things like pesticides, uh, the neonicotinoid pesticides, which have been linked to a lot of the recent bee declines of uh, both honeybees and wild bees. Um, and we simply don't know what impacts those are having on our wild butterfly populations in Britain. So there's still more to discover. Uh, so uh, just this last uh, week, uh, Sir David Attenborough, who I believe is the uh, president of your organisation, Butterfly right, yeah. Conservation, he said, uh, as, as you've just been talking about, that uh, butterflies are, are actually facing a vital period in the, in the UK uh, because there's a very worrying uh, decline in their numbers. And um, he has launched what's called the Big Butterfly Count. So your, your organisation has, la has, has launched this. Can you tell us what that is and also how we could be involved in it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Big Butterfly Count runs every summer. This is the eighth year of Big Butterfly Count. So it runs for a three-week period, which started on Friday. So there's plenty of time over the next three weeks to get involved. It actually finishes on Sunday the 6th of August. So that's the last day of this year's Big Butterfly Count. 
And it's an opportunity, it's a survey that focuses on the common and widespread butterflies. So the species that you would see, you might see in your garden, in a local park, or indeed out in the countryside. Um, and we are, it's something that everyone can get involved in. It's not something that's just for you know, very knowledgeable butterfly enthusiasts. This is something that anyone can get involved in. There's, um, it only takes 15 minutes, so we ask people to spend 15 minutes in decent weather, you know, sunny ideally, because there'll be more butterflies will be active if it's sunny, but as long as it's warm and it's not pouring with rain, then, you know, butterflies can be active. So you choose a place, and as I said, that could be anywhere, back garden, sitting in a deck chair with a mug of tea, could be walking the dog around the local park or cemetery, or it could be, you know, out on the countryside on a, on a, a trip out with the children or the grandchildren. Um, and you just count the butterflies that you see for 15 minutes and then submit those sightings, either through the Big Butterfly Count website or there's a free app that you can download to your smartphone and then you can, you can do the count and submit your sightings, you know, there and then all in one go. And if people are worried that they, they don't know their gatekeeper from their meadow brown or their ringlet, then there's a free identification chart that people can print off from the Big Butterfly Count website. So print that off before you, you go out to do your count. You can make a note of the butterflies that you see on that chart and then go back to the website and send in your sightings. And I think it's really important to, um, well, obviously, we want everyone to take part. It's a great thing to do. It generates really useful information for us uh, in terms of how our common butterflies are faring. It's also a great thing for people to, you know, just take a few minutes out of their busy schedules and just stop and watch wildlife, you know, whether it's in their gardens or further afield. Just engage with wildlife. It's a brilliant thing to get younger people involved in. Um, you know, we're very, lots of people are worried nowadays about children being sort of isolated from nature, not having that sort of freedom to go and roam and explore their neighborhood and their countryside, um, but stuck inside on, on video screens all the time. And this is a great opportunity to get children engaged. Richard, thank you uh, so much for uh, telling us all about that. So if we uh, want to get involved, just, just tell us again where we, where we can actually look online for information. Yeah, so if you do a search on Big Butterfly Count, you'll find it very easily. But the, the actual website address is www.bigbutterflycount.org. And uh, there are also links there to download the free app. Uh, if you uh, if you want to do that, and I was just going to say that it's you know even if you do your count and you don't see many butterflies or indeed you d you're unlucky you don't see any butterflies, please do still submit that information because you know it's not a competition to see who can see the most butterflies. We're trying to find out how butterflies are faring, and so if you only see two or you don't see any at all, that's just as valid as someone who's gone you know and been very lucky and seen 50 or 60 butterflies. Fantastic, uh, Richard Fox. Thank you very much. That's Richard. Fox, who's the head of recording at uh, the uh, Butterfly Conservation. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. We uh, uh, always try and stay on top of the of the news. When it's astronomy, I always give way to Andrew because uh, he's a crazy mad uh, astronomy fan uh, with his own uh, telescope and all that kind of thing in his backyard. He absolutely loves it. He loves it. You he's, have me today instead. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, that's uh, you, you know you 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 uh, you have your strengths. Uh, Andrew has his. <laughs> Uh, but I am going to take a, a bite at uh, this one because this is uh, we've we've mentioned this on the show already when Andrew's been here be before, uh, which is um, 
the, the, the red spot. This is part of the, the Juno mission. Are you, are you interested, actually, in, in, in astronomy? Is it something that's Yeah, I quite you? like it, actually. Um, I, don't, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge, though, but this article's really interesting. It's one from the BBC. Yeah. Is it, yes, we're looking at a Jonathan Amos uh, story. Uh, there, I mean, there are various places where you can find it, not least of which, of course, there's an awful lot on uh, NASA's own um, website. But uh, uh, there is a uh, space probe. It's called uh, Juno. It's uh, gone to Jupiter, and uh, it's been there for just over a year. Uh, it flies large ellipses around the planet, and it comes really close every f- 53 days. Uh, last Monday... It skimmed 3,500 kilometres above the cloud tops, which actually sounds like a long way. (laughs) But actually, when you're talking about Jupiter, which is vast, and uh, as Andrew uh, sometimes describes it, well, as as astronomers describe it, as a failed star. Yeah. It didn't quite get cooking, uh, uh, but but almost. Not quite. Uh, So it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And it's been looking at the red spot, and the red spot itself is the size of Earth. Uh, it's, it's actually bigger. It could engulf Earth, the size of it. Um, it's, it's been raging for, I, I believe, hundreds of years, or if not... Yeah. Yeah, it's an extremely long time, but it doesn't Which have... surprised me, actually, because I, 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 I just assumed it was part of the, fe- you know, the mm. natural feature of, of Jupiter, but, but, but it does have a birth date, and yeah. it, has, it did get cooking, and it is, of course, an, a huge storm. It is, it is, and I think um, in this article um, the BBC ran, they explained that usually storms on Earth slow down once they hit land. So um, if there's a hurricane or something like that raging over the sea, it, once it comes onto land, it loses a lot of its momentum. But because there's no solid surface on Jupiter, it's just continued and continued to rage this whole time um, since it was born. Um, it says uh, that the uh, is quoting Jonathan Nichols, who's a British science team member uh, from the University of Leicester. Of course, uh, Leicester is the the basis for a lot of our space uh, exploration. Uh, the the um, the British contribution to the European Space Agency uh, is ba- based in Leicester, apparently. Oh, wow. uh, and uh, he says this is Jonathan Nichols that these images are abs- the images that have come back are absolutely stunning. They reveal Jupiter's great red spot in all its glory and just to quote him more from the three swirls inside the deep red core to the waves and vortices orbiting it the images reveal the power and the chaos of this iconic storm the light and dark shades reveal the wild flow in the spot and potentially the 3d structure of the cloud decks but the images are also a perfect convergence of science and art revealing the awesome beauty of the giant planet so if that doesn't make you want to do astronomy, uh, I don't know what, what does. Um, there's a, there's a, a marvellous diagram as well that goes with uh, Jonathan Amos's article uh, for, the, for the BBC, uh, which uh, shows um, uh, sort of probing uh, Jupiter itself, uh, showing that uh, it has uh, a core of uh, liquid metallic hydrogen, probably, um, and then a dense core. It doesn't say very much uh, about what that is. But the outer atmosphere uh, is, uh, a lot of it is uh, made of hydrogen gas. So it's not one of those places where you really want to go on holiday. No, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing that I thought was really interesting, so what we were just talking about with the uh, the butterfly watch that you can do at home, that's part of uh, 
what is called like being a citizen scientist. Yes, indeed. These uh, these really stunning images were made by citizen scientists as well. Uh, the raw images that they took from uh, from NASA's website were quite a lot darker and duller. And the citizen scientist um, scientists have sort of uh, emphasised the colours to make it more visually stunning, more obvious what's actually going on, which which is what highlights all the uh, the central co uh, swirls that are going on there. Okay. Well. Uh, if you if you uh, look out at the, the 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 night sky, one of the brightest objects you will see in the sky, which uh, looks like it's a star, is in fact uh, Jupiter. Uh, I'm afraid I can't tell you where to look, uh, but uh, it shouldn't be too hard to uh, to look it up. But it's easily uh, one of the brightest objects in the sky. It looks like a star, but is actually uh, a planet. Right. Um, now, there's a sad, a sad story here. Uh, at, um, at the age of only uh, 40 years of age, uh, a uh, mathematician, the first woman to receive the prestigious Fields Medal for mathematics, uh, has died in the United States. Uh, she is uh, Iranian. Uh, professor from uh, Stanford University, uh, and her name is Mariam uh, Mirzakhani. And uh, she had breast cancer, which uh, sadly uh, spread to her bones, and uh, she has died. Um, uh, the Fields Medal apparently has been nicknamed the Nobel Prize for Mathematics. It's a rare thing uh, to get the Fields Medal. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's only awarded, apparently, to mathematicians under the age of 40. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I saw that, actually. And I... I think I read uh, somewhere, that I could be completely wrong with this, that the reason they do that is just to make sure that um, living mathematicians can get the prize yeah. uh, rather than uh, retrospectively awarding it to people after they've already died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but th there's also, I think it's a bit of a myth, but they say that most uh, people who excel at mathematics do their best work before the age of 30. Oh, really? Which means if you become interested in mathematics after the age of 30, <laughs> you might be a little bit uh, disheartened. But apparently it's a complete myth. Mm. Uh, it's not true. Um, it's, not, it's not true for those reasons anyway. It's not true because people are un unable older people are unable to do work in mathematics um, but uh, the, the the story that we're we're focusing on uh, is the story of, of, of this woman um, uh, uh, Mariam Mariam Mirzakhani uh, uh, because uh, she was in fact the first woman to receive the Fields Medal and uh, it is indeed uh, very prestigious. Uh, it happened in 2014 for her work on something called complex geometry and dynamical systems. That's something which would be extremely difficult uh, to go into on the radio. Um, I'm a great believer in uh, anybody can explain absolutely uh, anything given time, but, but with something like geometry and dynamical systems, it is something that would take time, and it would take somebody who understands it really well to explain it uh, really quite uh, simply. So I'm not, I'm not uh, certainly on this occasion uh, going to have a, a, a go at that because it's way, way beyond me. Uh, but I just want to uh, acknowledge uh, her. The Foreign Minister, uh, Mohammad Javad Zarif, Foreign Minister of Iran, uh, said that her death was a cause for grief for all Iranians. Um, he said, a light was turned off today, it breaks my heart, she's gone far too soon. Um, uh, he added in a subsequent post, a genius, yes, but also a daughter, a mother and uh, a, a wife. Um, 
uh, she leaves her husband, Czech scientist uh, Jan uh, Vodrak. They had uh, one daughter. Uh, and um, so uh, we add our tribute uh, uh, to her. Uh, and um, uh, the world is a, a better place uh, for uh, people who uh, give their uh, energy uh, to something uh, like this and to help expand, uh, expand our knowledge. Um, so uh, let's just go back because we don't have uh, a huge amount of, of, of time left. There's another story I wanted to pick up on, uh, which is a rather grim one. But since we're in sad mode, I thought I would pick it up. Uh, and that is that um, growing competition for land and natural resources saw a record number of environmental activists killed in 2016 according uh, to the publication Global Witness. Uh, it's a, a, a green group, Global Witness, and uh, it details 200 murders across 24 countries, which is up significantly from uh, 2015. So uh, why that is, uh, is hard to know, although it says that 60% of the killings uh, uh, last year took place in Latin America with a significant number of victims from indigenous communities. So uh, as people are putting uh, pressure on um, uh, governments and uh, local uh, activities which threaten the environment, sometimes people uh, push back. And it seems that in some places uh, that war has been uh, quite uh, intense. Well, I'm, we're joined uh, happily uh, by John Ford, uh, who's uh, on mic three, he tells me. There you go. Yeah, should be how about there. that? Yes, that's really good. Uh, uh, good to see you, John. How good are you? Good to see you. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has been a while since, not crossed, uh, since I've seen you. Anyway. I've been here. You've not been here. Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Well. Uh, I'm fine. You've been on your holidays? Um, I've, I've had a couple of days here and there, yeah. Ah, very yeah, good. Yeah, 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 very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. Mine, mine are yet. Oh, well, I say mine are yet to come. I had, I had a very nice time in Ireland oh, right. uh, for okay. a week. Which so part was, of Ireland? was really good. Uh, down in Castletown Bear, oh, which right. is right down the south. We have family down there, yeah. so it's quite nice. I went to, but when you, you, you yeah. get there, you fly into Cork, yeah. and then you, it's like going along the fjords. You have to go up oh, and yeah. down all the, you know, uh, up and down <laughs> uh, the coastline till you eventually get there. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, as the crow flies, not not so bad. Well, can I congratulate you on a very interesting show today? Thank you very much. Yes, you were missed last week, but I I, I did my science news last week, even though you guys. Oh, were here. fantastic! So Thank we did a, you, John. we did a bit of science last week. All yeah. right. And and, and, and and what what did we miss out this well uh, this week this week you've missed loads and loads I mean come on you need to uh, share we get, um, need to get our act together in 1902 Willis Haviland Carrier invented something do you know what it was on this day say say his name again Willis Haviland Carrier Haviland Haviland a jet engine uh, no 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 kind of close um, it was the world's first scientific air conditioning system yeah. Oh. 1902. Oh, well. uh, going further back in time, 1888, the African-American inventor Grenville Woods, what do you think he patented this very day? <laughs> oh, no. Back in 1888. Grenville Woods. Oh, the wood-burning stove. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> it was, it was really, the, uh, the tunnel construction for electric railways. In other words, the electricity that, that goes under the, uh, under the ground, if you like, and feeds ah. the wheels with electric, as in the, the underground in tube. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, 1850, the first um, photograph of a star was made at Harvard Observatory. 
Ah. So you didn't do that? No, um, we didn't. 1790, Thomas Saint. You're going back before my time yeah, I know, now. Yeah. Um, Thomas Saint, he was a London cabinet maker. Do you know what he patented this very day in 1790? No, sorry. It's all The gone. sewing machine. Ah, uh, oh. well, well, he's much fated. Well, John, we're going we're gonna to have to leave it there, sadly, because it's the end of, of the show. But uh, stay tuned, because John Ford is getting Bristol home after the news. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. So uh, from Hannah Bestwick and me, uh, goodbye from Love and Science. Don't forget to join us again next week and have yourself a very good evening. Mm-hmm.